Welcome to the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Today, we're going to talk about a fall poem because it's autumn here while we're recording. I want to talk about a sonnet by Jeannie Marie Walker. Jeannie Marie Walker just came out with a wonderful collection of sonnets called Pilgrim, You Find the Path by Walking. It's all sonnets. And these sonnets are wonderful because they're crafted according to the strict sonnet rules, but it's usually on the second read that you notice the form. On the first read, the content and the beauty of imagery shines through. And I think that's really apparent in this sonnet that I want to read you. This is called Foreboding, and it comes right at the beginning of the second section of the sonnets in this collection. This is Foreboding. The twelve-point buck had finished our azalea and browses, let's say, in some dark meadow south of us, lifting his bright candelabra to the moon. Far off, the wavering tremolo of coyotes, the low and endless snapping crickets. Field mice, fearing the long fast of winter, gather seeds. Black crows mapping an exit. They're all gone, last of the last, quarreling about the route. Only we stay, who can't migrate, we who hear the scratch and fall of leaves more anxious every day as darkness lengthens. Earthworms stop and lie like crooked nails beneath brown thatch. Last night, a mouse with red, alcoholic eyes. What I love about this sonnet is that it doesn't feel like a sonnet immediately. I think if it wasn't in a collection titled or subtitled sonnets, I wouldn't have immediately guessed it was a sonnet. One of the reasons for that is because, as I mentioned earlier, the form isn't as pronounced. The diction is much more casual and much more a series of concrete descriptions than we often expect in a sonnet. Someone like Shakespeare's sonnets, often we find the posing of a problem in the opening line. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. That's the opening four lines, and it sets up this conundrum. Can we compare people to summer days? Oh no, summer days fade. Is beauty going to fade? It uses concrete imagery, but there's a almost like a philosophical temporal conundrum. There's not one of those in this poem, or at least if there is, it's not foregrounded. The opening lines, instead of posing this question that someone like Shakespeare might pose or Milton might pose, instead we just have concrete description of animals. The 12-point buck has finished our azalea and browses, let's say, in some dark meadow south of us, lifting his bright candelabra to the moon. That's the first three and a half lines, and that's the first whole sentence. That, if it was just written out in prose, I think would feel like a beautiful prose sentence. But it's crafted to fit into these three lines of ten syllables each. The twelve-point buck has finished our azalea and browses, let's say, in some dark meadow south of us, lifting his bright candelabra to the moon. Azalea and candelabra are rhyming with each other. Meadow is about to rhyme with the first clause of the next sentence, which is far off the wavering tremolo 
of coyotes. So meadow and tremolo are rhyming. So there actually is a Shakespearean rhyme scheme here. It's A-B-A-B. But one of the things that Walker's doing is she's not giving us exactly regular iambic pentameter. And I think that's one of the reasons why this doesn't feel as kind of jaunty in its meter as a Shakespeare sonnet might be. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? The 12-point buck has finished our azalea. It's almost there, but the rhythm is a little more casual. While we have an iambic foot at the beginning of the first two lines, the 12, and browses, that unstressed stress syllable is there in the first two syllables of each of the first two lines. In the third line, we start with a trochee, south of us lifting his bright candelabra. By the end, we have the rhyme with the candelabra rhyming with azalea. But even then, Leah and bra don't quite rhyme exactly. It's just the ah sound that's rhyming. And this is something that we find uh, not just in Walker, but in a lot of contemporary poets who write formal sonnets. Don Patterson, who we've talked about on this podcast before, does this as well. He makes sure there's a rhyming sound, but sometimes it's a little looser or a little harder to immediately recognize than a strict day, way, pay, may that we might find in something like a Shakespeare sonnet. Nevertheless, there are exact rhymes in this. Meadow and tremolo do rhyme, that do and low. That's more of a conventional rhyme. But tremolo is a word that's very, I think, unexpected. It's the kind of thing that you'll find a lot in Walker poems. You'll find these borrowings from the vocabulary of music. Far off the wavering tremolo of coyotes, the low and endless snapping crickets. What I like about this is we move from the buck, who's eating the azalea, to a meadow, to the candelabra lifted to the moon. What's the candelabra? Well, a candelabra lifted to the moon in itself is a beautiful image, but the candelabra, we're supposed to think, is the buck's horns. After all, it's a 12-point buck, meaning it has 12 points on its antlers. That becomes a candelabra. It's lit up. This is one of the wonderful things about Walker's imagery. The more you think about it, the more there is to see. At first, it's just, okay, it's the 12-point antlers. It looks like a candelabra. Wait, what does a candelabra do? Well, the tips of it glow because they're on fire. Do the tips of a box horns glow? Well, in the moonlight, they would. And all of a sudden, we have this image of the glowing tips of the box horns, which isn't explicitly stated, but the more we think about it, the more the image resolves itself. It's a wonderful crafting of an image and giving us enough that the more we think about it, the more the image reveals itself to us. Let's talk about the coyotes for a minute. Far off, the wavering tremolo of coyotes. We've had mostly sight imagery, the 12-point buck, the dark meadow, the bright candelabra, the moon. Now we have a sound, even the movement of sound, the tremolo that's wavering. And then we have another great sound word, the snapping of crickets. And that snap is nice because it's almost an onomatopoeia. Uh, we usually think of crickets chirping and 
it's almost too easy an image if we were to say there are crickets outside. It's nighttime in fall. What are the crickets doing? Well, they're chirping or they're singing. No, Walker doesn't reach for that easy expected image. She reaches for something that's true, snapping, but that we don't often focus on. Once again, this is a wonderful, subtle way of giving us imagery which makes sense to us, but is not quite expected. Further, that snapping, it's at the end of a line. It's going to rhyme with mapping in two lines. That snapping is in the same line as the word coyotes. And if you're reading for this this for the first time and stop at that line, it almost seems like the coyotes are snapping. Of course, snapping coyotes would mean coyotes that are trying to bite something. That's a little ominous. And I think this is the first moment we have in the poem that there's a little bit of danger. I guess there's something negative to a moose eating your azaleas. Sorry, a buck eating your azaleas. That's a little sad, but the snapping coyotes is a little more dire. What are they snapping at? They're not going to snap at your flowers. They're going to snap at other living creatures. And so we have a an ominousness that begins to set into this poem. Not a lot. It's subtle, but it begins here. Field mice, fearing the long fast of winter, gather seeds. Black crows mapping an exit. They're all gone, last of the last quarreling about the route. So here we begin to see a pattern in what these creatures are doing. The buck's just eating and browsing. The coyotes are howling. The field mice are gathering seeds, fearing the long fast of winter. There begins to be an urgency. This isn't just browsing for fun. Something's coming. A lack is coming. A fast is coming. Now, I love this because Walker, of course, knows that traditionally there's a fasting season that leads up to Christmas. But of course, also, just biologically, during winter, it's harder to get food, especially for creatures like mice. So that fast is both a naturalistic description of the fact that it's harder to come by food if you're a creature living outside during the winter, but also that ecclesiastically, in the liturgical calendar, this is a fast time as we approach winter. Black crows are mapping an exit. And in, in fact, black crows mapping an exit is the first in several sentence fragments that Walker gives us. The three sentences before this have all been full sentences. They've had a subject, had a predicate. The first sentence is several clauses long. It's like Walker has given us enough of a scene that she trusts us to understand a sentence fragment. Black crows mapping an exit. Also, that mapping is rhyming with snapping nicely. Uh, we have another full rhyme as opposed to the slant rhyme of azalea and candelabra. We have a at the end of the, these first six lines, we have this sort of summing up, and this happens often in a sonnet. By line six, seven, or eight, you, you begin to have sort of a drawing to a close the first half of the sonnet. They're all gone, last of the last, quarreling about the route. So all of these creatures we've been seeing, both the ones that are preparing to leave— Crows, of course, are flying south. They're mapping an exit. I like it because it's not crows flying south. That's what we would expect. It's crows mapping an exit. They're, in fact, acting a lot like humans. There's a sense of crows looking at a map, looking for an exit, 
kind of from a freeway, the crows are very much like us. They don't literally have their Google Maps app out, but they might as well. And they're quarreling about the route and how human is that. After quarreling about the route, which is the beginning of the ninth line, there's a break. And in fact, there's not just a line break, there's a stanza break. And then we continue on a space below that with the rest of the ninth line. Only we stay who can't migrate. So these animals had been kind of acting like humans a little bit, but now a contrast is drawn. We're the ones who stay. We're not leaving. Only we stay who can't migrate. And that can't is really interesting. I think if we were thinking about humans in general, we would say humans don't migrate. It's not that they can't. But that use of can't, I think, brings in this idea that the speaker, or maybe the speaker's community, feels stuck, that there's some inability, a desire to migrate, but an inability to migrate. And I think this brings in once more this slightly negative, ominous feeling that this isn't just a regular autumn scene of flora and fauna changing or moving. This is a human who is in a particular emotional situation, who is feeling stuck and feeling a contrast between what the animals get to do even in their necessity, and what the, the state that the human finds themselves in. We who hear the scratch and fall of leaves, more anxious every day as darkness lengthens. I love it because the language is getting more dense. We've had rhymes, but we, we're starting to have these series of repeated sounds, especially with anxious darkness lengthens. It's, it's wonderful earthworms oh okay now we're back to outside flora and fauna again earthworms stop and lie like crooked nails beneath brown thatch there's a line break after the word lie of course we're going to have it rhyme in a minute with eyes but stop and lie for earthworms, they've stopped moving and they're lying on the ground. Oh, that's a little ominous. They're dead. But lie, of course, is one of those words that means to be prone on a surface or to tell untruths. And we're going to start getting the sense of maybe what the stuckness is or what the untruths are in a minute. Like crooked nails beneath brown thatch. Thatch, of course, would be roofing material. Crooked nails would be those nails that are holding down thatch that then themselves get covered up by the next thatch. So down underneath things, there's crookedness. Once again, very concrete description, but very emotionally resonant, especially building with the ominousness. And then the last line, which is once again a sentence fragment, but Walker trusts us to understand it and contextualize it. Last night, a mouse with red alcoholic eyes. The word alcoholic here is very surprising. Mice with red eyes, okay, the red eyes of a mouse, or usually a rat uh, we think of as having red eyes. Okay, that's a little ominous, but eh, it's a natural phenomenon, okay. No, this mouse's eyes are red like an alcoholic's eyes. And with this idea of crookedness down below and this idea of feeling stuck, the word alcoholic just brings in this feeling of, well, stuckness in a pattern that is not just a habit, but a bad habit. 
a destructive habit. The title of this, as I mentioned at the beginning, is foreboding. And you almost get the sense, I, I should say, I almost get the sense, that an intervention is needed. Oh, okay, we, do we need to talk to the mouse about this problem the mouse has? Oh, maybe it's not the mouse that has the problem. Maybe the speaker is thinking of someone that has a problem like this, that there's this stuckness in a pattern that needs to be addressed. And autumn is coming on. And everything is feeling more meager and feeling more alone and cold. It's a wonderful creation of a mood. And it's the creation of a mood that I think poetry does really well, but we don't often ask for in poetry. It brings us into a state of tension and anxiety and leaves us there. The sonnet is this little contraption of words that we've talked about many times, this idea of sonnet as a contraption. Contraption is a word that the critic Helen Vendler likes to use for sonnets. And one of the things that Vendler talks about is that sonnets are these little contraptions that are good at certain things and bad at others. Sonnets don't tell big narratives well. And though we might be interested in what's the narrative behind this, it's not about a big, you know, this isn't a novel about you know, domestic scenes in America and, you know, marital or, or familial tension. All it is is a speaker getting a sense of foreboding as they wash the flora and fauna of autumn and coming around to the admission that there's some sort of pattern or stuckness or crookedness that needs fixing. And I think that's enough to resonate with the reader. We don't need a backstory. We shouldn't, I think, read into the writer like, oh, they're trying to tell us something that they can't quite bring themselves to tell us. No, this is a masterfully crafted sonnet. This sonnet has in it exactly what the writer wanted to put in it. And I think it's a testament to Walker's both ability to give us very detailed description and also to hold back what she wants to hold back as a writer. She gives us, well, 14 lines of architectonics of foreboding, we might say. She builds for us a verbal mechanism which creates the exact feeling she wants to create within us. That's good for us. It's good for us to be brought by art into a state where we get to work through our emotions. This is Aristotle again, of course. Aristotle says that tragedy purges us of pity and fear by arousing them in us and cleansing us of them. I think Walker here is creating in us a sense of foreboding and through that helping us deal with it. This is something that poetry can do. Poetry isn't therapy, but art as we know is an emotional thing. And the emotion of art is created by the artist using their craft and their form in order to shape an experience for us. That's what's happening in this sonnet. Uh, there are many other sonnets in this collection that are worth talking about. Maybe we'll get to some of them in a future podcast. I don't want you to think that all of Walker's sonnets are this sort of like dark, foreboding uh, feeling, but I like this sonnet because we don't often expect this from a sonnet, and it's done masterfully. 
Thanks for hanging out talking about Walker's sonnets. I recommend picking up Pilgrim You Find the Path by Walking. It's a great book. There's a lot of sonnets. It's a book that you can really take your time with. Read a couple sonnets, sit with them, read a few more, sit with them. And it's wonderful to see that in this late age, our master poets are still writing in these old traditions. We talked about A.E. Stallings' sonnet a couple episodes ago. Uh, Walker's another one who keeps putting out work that continues this tradition long after some may think it should be gone. I don't think it should be gone. May the sonnet last another thousand years. Go forth and read. Thank you.